0: Hi, I'm off of school, so I'm going to see if I can do this now in uh, a pocket of time that I have over here. A lot of things going on this week, and uh, the arts, like, at the end of the week, I'm trying to put together adren for uh, something for Sunday, and I'm college starting next week, it's a busy week, um, and I just want to, before I start, uh, mention uh, that uh, this is... Um, podcast is being sponsored, or let's put it this way, being dedicated memory of Mrs. Hiller, uh, Reina Basarim, Avinu, Reina Basarimenu, my husband uh, asked me the other day, apparently it's a lady who passed away young, unfortunately, leaving behind progeny, and I uh, hope, Garrett Sedeck too, uh, that there'll be a swiss for her in the summer. Um... Uh, I was wondering who to do this week, and I was sent a whole bunch of names, and I don't know, I didn't want to really get into them, and then I thought about it, and, I mean, you could do the Ramba or the Ravit or something like that, but that's not for a short podcast. The, um, on the other hand, uh, something, uh, let, let me put it this way, two German-Jewish Orthodox rabbis in the 19th century apparently died this week, or last week, whatever it was, and the one is more well-known, the other one's less well-known. And have a very different character, and because of this juxtaposition, it led me to think in the last 12, 15 hours about this, and I'm going to share one with you today, and that would be the Chief Rabbi of England, uh, Nathan Marcus Adler. That's what I to talk about. The other one would be, of course, Samson Revel Hirsch, and these were contemporaries, but they had very different careers, and to my mind, the difference in their careers and the different type of communities that they created are extremely relevant now to the life that you and I live today. So let me explain what I'm talking about. I'm speaking today of, a, of someone called Rabbi, Rabbi Nathan Marcus Adler, Nathan Adler. This is not the Nathan Adler that, uh, you know who was in Frankfurt, the Hassam Sofers Rebbe and all that. That's another person. And it could be that this guy was actually named after him. It's not clear to me. But um, here's somebody who lived in the 1800s, 19th century and became the first chief rabbi of England, sort of. I'll explain what I mean. Uh, here's um, a yekka. So, this is somebody who basically um, kind of was a pioneer uh, before Hirsch, of what you call term, der but in a very different way. Uh, Nathan Marcus Adler was the son of a big Yichus, you know, the Kohanim, the... The rabbinical elite. But in a weird time, he was born in 1803. And this would be right in the middle of the Napoleonic Wars. When the reform movement and movement life in general in Europe started to go to the left. This is immediately the aftermath of the French Revolution. And he lived all through the 1800s, which is the time of gigantic change in Judaism. And died, I think, in 1890. So he was in an advanced age. So this is somebody who lives all through the 19th century, as we call it. And he's from Hanover, I think. And if you ask me, what's Hanover? Germany used to be a combination of a bunch of little different countries. Only in 1870, under Bismarck, did it unite into a single country called the United States of Germany, or as they called it at that time, the Deutsches Reich, which means the German Empire, in which the king of Prussia was like the, sort of like the presiding officer of the German uh, Empire. But until then, he had a bunch of different states. One of these states is called Hanover, which went through all kinds of developments that are too detailed to go into here now. But suffice it to say that we're talking about a principality, a country, which is in the north of Germany. So I'm not talking about places like Frankfurt and Wurzburg in the south of Germany that many Jews in Baltimore or elsewhere are descended from. Rather, I'm talking about northern Germany where the Jewish population was much more sparse, which is Interesting. And um, Hirsch is also from the north of Germany. San Hamburg. All these places are not far from each other. Hanover, Hamburg. And uh, at the time I'm talking about Germany had many, many different states. Um, When they ended the Napoleonic Wars in the Congress of Vienna, they finally uh, settled the wars in Europe. There were 38 different German states. Now, Hanover is interesting because the ruling family there which goes back many, many hundreds of years, became the king of kings of England. So Queen Elizabeth today, and the whole Hliostra, the whole uh, royal family, are really Hanoverians. They're German. It's called the House of Brunswick, or Brunswick. The only thing is, since they fought Germany in World War and World War II, they changed the name to House of Windsor, you know, make it sound more English. Just like a Jewish guy with the name Schwartz might end up changing his name Black to make it sound more English. You know, that kind of thing. So, uh which is just interesting. So if you know your English history, they used to have the House of Stuart, you know, the Charles I and Charles II and James II and Queen Anne, but then they died out with any kids. And so the ones who came after them was a different dynasty that were related, and that's called the House of Hanover. So that means that during the 1700s, 1800s, and 1900s, England, or the British Empire, had been ruled as kings and queens by the uh, by this royal family. But at the same time, They didn't give up their ancestral territory back in germany and so there's this already connection you might say between the area of hanover on the one hand and the british empire on the other now specifically in our case this rabbi nathan mark was born therefore in a world in which everybody especially in northern germany is moving to the left and yiddishkeit is going to be under increasing strain and observance is really going to go and deteriorate in the course of the 19th century just like observance of mitzvahs deteriorated all across the Jewish world, everywhere during the 19th century, with very few exceptions. I'm talking about in the European Ashkenazi world. I'm not talking about the Sephardic world, the Arab world. I'm talking about the, the European world. And I think we all know that the 1800s is Mamash when everybody went off the deck, to use the current expression. That's when the masses of people abandoned Torah observance, in the strict sense. So, it wasn't necessarily so much fun to be a rabbi in... Uh, the 19th century, even though, on the other hand, that's when the Jews eventually got their emancipation, their civil rights is 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 a uh, what's the right word a, a, a sort of a paradox or a you know an, an anomaly that you want they got the gashmi good but the Rukhnias went down the tubes, and all the people who were rabbonim were thoughtful rabbonim in the 19th century always trying to figure out how can you make it that you can have the gashmi and the Rukhnias? what you and I strive to have in America today which means you have civil rights and civil liberties, all the rest of it. But you combine that with a full Torah observance lifestyle as much as you can. It wasn't impossible, but it didn't happen, broadly speaking. So This was the world of yesteryear in which uh, this character, Nick Mark Zadler, was born. His father was a rov, and so therefore he's a member of a tiny elite. And it's 1803, so he was, grew up, the father grew up in the 1700s before all this happened. So he's from the old school. And he was a in Hanover, you know, and i have based him, such as I've spoken about in the past. You know, uh, you don't give speeches, you, you pass consilas. Uh, I imagine he tried to have a little cheap over there, but in northern Germany that was tough because the Balabatim are cheap and, second of all, they're not interested in Kite not much, just in basic traditionalism, you know, holiday, Shabbos, uh, you know, which I say, Hanukkah, like that, you know, that sort of thing. Now, um, that means that this boy growing up in 1803 is going to be different than the kids around him because his father's the rabbi, they're off. And so the father learned with him from an early age. I'm sure there was no yeshivas or anything like that around there. The father learned with him at an early age. Probably had nobody else to talk to in terms of learning. That's that kind of community. And so ironically, even though he grows up in a, in a quote-unquote, non-from Jewish community, he had a good education, a good chinuch. And uh, then when he's a teenager he goes off to yeshiva, like today you go to yeshiva in Israel, at that time he went to yeshiva in South Germany, because in South Germany you still had, in Bavaria which is South Germany, you still had the remnants of uh, the old Frumkite um, and, uh, and and yeshivas, so what am I talking about, around 1820, something like that, uh, now all these yeshivas will be gone by 1840s but in the last years you still had it uh, there's this three volume book on the You can get it from Rabbi Hamburger, who, uh, in Hebrew, about the Yeshiva in Firth, for example, uh, which was still rocking and rolling until it went under. They had places like this, Wurzburg. Okay, now, so this guy, Nathan Mark Zadler, he learns from his father, and then he goes to Yeshiva in Wurzburg. And uh, he was there for X number of years. So he had, even though it was in modern German times, he had a very firm upbringing, and uh, I, he seems to be good in learning and all that sort of thing. Who's he friends with? The one who later on became, the you know, Bamberger, the one who became the Wurzburger of, you know, that yeshiva shechever, as they would say today. However, as time proceeds, when he gets to be, he's born 1803, so by the early 1820s, he's so already going be 20 years old, so he can see if anybody wants to go and have a career in Rabonis or anything connected with that, uh, you're not going to get anywhere in Germany uh, unless you have a secular education as well, or to use modern expression, until you get a PhD. And he's more or less the first guy, or one of the very first that did this before Hirsch, because he's five years older than Hirsch. And uh, so what he did was uh, he went to uh, a number of places, and eventually, you know, he knows he got a, himself a secular education. Up to the point of a PhD, in one of those German universities, I think Erlangen, it doesn't matter which one. And so here's a guy in the late 1820s, so that would mean, let's say he's approximately 25 years old, something like that. And now he's a, a, he has a smicha, you know, from the yeshiva, which he did get. And uh, now he's a doctorate. So the PhD is, is not necessarily to, become, to turn you into a doctor of philosophy and start writing German philosophy books. It's more to show you you're not a behemoth. Because in in the uh, world of the 19th century, uh, to the Goyim, if you have a secular education, you're a Bahama. And to the Germans, Balabatim, they're affected by that. And so they see a rabbi with, with, without a, a secular education is a, a tremendous loss of respect. Masheine Kain, if you have the Ph.D., then it's a tremendous gain in respect. Because then what you say is, the guy's age, educated uh, and cultured, and alpha be Cain, he wants to keep Shabbos. That's interesting. You see, so the, the paradox that was presented or has certainly like a romantic appeal to it. The guy has a college education. He's, uh has more advanced education than, than the Balabatim and many Christians as well. because not that many people went to college, to the university anyway. And uh, nevertheless, he wants to be an Orthodox rabbi. So he, if I remember correctly, tried to get positions. It didn't work out so well. But uh, he moved back to Hanover, where the government in Hanover was a funny situation because, as I told you before, it's the same royal family like in England. And so historically, the King of England was also the Prince of Hanover, and after 1815 it became the Kingdom of Hanover. So the King of England is the King of Hanover. But the King of England in 1815 was nuts. I mean, insane. I'm talking about King George III, the guy who um, was the King of England at the time of the American Revolution. He literally went insane. This is W. Dua. And uh, didn't they make a movie or something? The Madness of King George, something like that. He he went insane, and his royal family was momish dysfunctional. You think you got shtick now with the royal family in England? You know, with Prince Charles and I don't I don't follow them all. Is Diana still around? You know, so the uh, Prince Harry. You know, they always like to to hawk with uh, all the uh, royal family and all their shenanigans. It's nothing near to how bad it was. The royal family in England in the early eighteen hundreds. They were beyond dissolute. They were beyond disreputable, oh my goodness, my goodness, the Prince Regent and George the Fourth and William the White, it was a, Queen Victoria brought back uh, what shall I say uh, decorum and respectability to the royal family, and she became the epitome of cineas and all that, as I think everybody knows, so even today you talk of Victorian, you know means very uh Cineastic. but it wasn 't like that before then. I can tell you that right now, so the royal family was in tremendous disrepute and as part of a disreputable lifestyle, they didn't have any kids. A lot of them didn't get married. They just had mistresses and all this kind of stuff. And uh, it was a bad news scene. So, where am I going with all this? The King of England, therefore, uh, when Hanover became a kingdom, so uh, it, it formally it's the King of England, but really it's, he always gave it to a relative to run the place called the Viceroy. So, this rabbi, Nathan Marcus Adler, this, uh comes to Hanover, when now it's a kingdom, and the government wants to organize all the religious communities that they should be, you know, yackish, that is to say, top-down and uh, and neat and, uh, you know, uh, systematic and all that sort of thing. No, it's the opposite of Orthodox Judaism. And so, uh, even though his father was the Rav, he became like the chief rabbi and he was higher than the father, if you, you understand what I'm saying, as far as the government is concerned. And what is their job of, of a rabbi as far as this Geisha government is concerned? He should be like a minister. You know, like a Protestant minister. I don't mean in a bad way. What do you mean by that? Uh, you know, deliver sermons, uh, preach morality, run Sunday schools, charity things. Not like a rov. So uh, let's put it this way. This guy was able to do it because he has a degree. He can speak German now. Perfect German. Uh, he has the education and the manners necessary uh, to, to, to satisfy this kind of uh, uh, which, uh, job description. Happened to be, he also was a from guy. He happened to be also was a Tamil so But he didn't stress that part, you understand? And we're talking about a world in which you start, um, what shall I say? I would call it Reform A as opposed to Reform B. That's how I usually do it in my classes. There was a tremendous movement. In Germany, in the first half of the eighteen hundreds, to institute what they call reform A and the Orthodox and everybody went for this. I am actually going to be speaking about this in a couple weeks in Livingston, I think it is, one of my Skowen residents. I told you I am always looking for a Skowen residents, but uh, I I believe that's what we're talking about over there. There is a fascinating chart in uh, in in a certain professor's uh, article, in which you see little by little all over Germany. they pass these, the shoals on their own, pass these, what I would call, decorum reforms. has nothing to do with hashkafa, has nothing to do with your philosophy of Torah and, and all the rest of it. has to do with a sense of decorum. So, for example, this is when they, little by little, ban talking in shul. Now, it so happens you're not allowed to talk in shul anyway because of the That's not why they're doing it. They're doing it because in the church, is no uh, talking, it's a Hashem, and it is, no question, and if we ban that. But also, a lot of other things, which are part of traditional Judaism, which then conform to Western I, Christian ideas of what's the quorum in the synagogue. For example, you can't sing out loud too much, you know, or you or can't dance like you do in Silchus Torah, or they can't uh, or do groggers of Haman, I remember, and a whole bunch of other little things, I like guess. This. this is this is when the German Jews become yackas, meaning they become, uh, in, in, how should I say, uh, they want to reform. I'm talking about reform with a small R, not with a capital R. Reform the practices to make it look more respectful in the guysh eyes. Um, I remember those of you go duchning, they should wear slippers. You know what's wrong with socks? Eh, it's not done posse. You know? understand? Uh, don't stand outside. I remember when you uh, do kiddush Levana. Uh You know all kind of crazy little things that you and I don't necessarily care about because we kind of live isolated lives, and it hasn't. That sensibility hasn't come into our culture which is more yeshivish shall we say but uh, it was at that time and none of these things that I just mentioned is, is, is necessarily against the din right no let's put it this way you don't have to have dancing on simchat Torah you can have a more decorous kind of thing uh, you know there are, uh, slippers are okay you know for dochaning um, you know things like that in general uh, can you have a choir oh well every church has a choir so you have to have a choir Jews actually had choirs in the old days, but consisting of two. Now they want a more formal choir like you Well, it's not against the din, you know, per se. You can go to some shuls now. You go to the, I, I like to go sometimes in the great synagogue I go against Jerusalem once in a while, and once a year I'm there, hear a choir. There's nothing against the din per se, uh, but it's, it bespeaks an entire attitude in which you want to make the Judaism, at least in the externals, more conformable. The rabbi should wear a robe with one of those hats, the miters, as they call them, the barattas. Well, it's not against the din, exactly, you know? You see what I'm saying? Every time you do it, it's not against the din. Uh, now, this is different than the reform movement, what I call reform, Re- with a capital R, in which they actually wanted to change halakhic things. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about things that the Balabatim are pushing that will make it, quote-unquote, more respectable. So he comes out of this uh, tradition, and he was smart enough to see they got to go along with this. He probably really felt that way. And so he transformed the rabbinate into this kind of uh, modern and semi-Protestant kind of business in which the main thing is uh, the speeches and the sermons and the lectures. Although he was a firm guy, and if he could find five or six guys together to make a chevrashas, he did do so. Yeah, but that's it. You've only got four, four or five people. The reality is that you have what's officially an Orthodox congregation, and it was, but nobody wants to keep anything or is interested in anything. So you can't give a sheer. Nobody wants to come. You understand? This is a terrible situation from our perspective nowadays. But that's what the Rabanis was in many, many, many places. Uh, Sam Srivil Hirsch battled with this problem, and his life is divided into two halves. The first half is when he put up with this junk, and he was not a happy camper. Because in his positions, in the first half of his life, uh, you know, he had exactly these kinds of congregations. And it was no good. I mean, he could speak well, so could Adler. But there's more to life if you're a Rav than giving a, a, a sermon, you know. I mean, if, if that's what it is, but nobody keeps anything, you don't feel good. Only in the second half of his life did Hirsch encounter a different situation. But Adler, not exactly. And so here's somebody who becomes the, um, rap, The I guess you call him the chief rabbi. It's a government position of the kingdom of Hanover for, what, 1828, to 19, 15 years, something like that. And uh, he knows how to get along with the guyim. He knows how to get along with the viceroy or the regent, who is the Duke of, I think, Cambridge. Point is that these big mockers are members of the British royal family. They're uh, deputizing for the kings of England. Uh, so in that was officially the king of England was the king of Hanover, uh, you know, King George the Fourth and then William the Fourth. Those names don't mean anything you. But... Uh, in reality, there was some duke that was always in charge over there, and he knew how to get along with them. Now, all this leads to the important part because I can't give you a whole detailed business, and that is, meanwhile, stuff happened in England, because in Great Britain, um, after these kings died—King uh, George the Third, George the Fourth, and William the Fourth—sent a queen. Uh, what's her name? Victoria, which is not popular, you know. Their movies and things like that. For some reason, Victoria's come back in the fashion. And Queen Victoria, of course, was the longest reigning uh, uh, queen from 1837 to, I don't know, uh, 1900, I think it was, 1901. So what's that? That's a long time. Although the current queen, Queen Elizabeth, is going past her. Maybe she already has. She's been around for a long time also, So uh, since 52, I believe. So the point is that this uh, new uh, Queen Victoria situation and, uh, you know, changes are happening in England the the law in Hanover was a lady can't be queen, you know, a ruler. So her uncle, Ernest Augustus, he became the king of Hanover. And this, Rabbi Adler knew how to get along with him also. Uh, and I'll say it again, he was a Talmud Kacham. You know, he was. But there's nobody talked to talk to. That's the hard part about it. You know, I, I can imagine what that situation is. Is nobody in your community. You can, you can know, uh, the, you know, the, uh, the, the Shulchan Aruch and the Rambam and the Poskim, it doesn't mean anything to anybody, so it's just very disheartening, you know. Now um, he was against the reform movement, you know, when the reformers started in the early eighteen forties. I think you know, with their uh, reform conventions and changing the, the halachas and the davening, he was one of those who protested against it all that. But at the same time, it's known that he is uh, not like your average Orthodox rabbi because he's highly educated. As I said before, he has a he has a PhD. Now, meanwhile, in England, the situation was that there was a Jewish community, and not so large, you know, I would say by this time 10,000, something like that. Um, Some of them were quite wealthy, like the Rothschilds, when the Rothschilds started, and others. Uh, Formally speaking, the Jews in England didn't have rights, but as I've mentioned in previous podcasts, de facto they had rights. You couldn't vote, you know. You can't necessarily go to Oxford, no big deal. But, I mean, you know, de facto there were no real discrimination laws against them. You can go into business, you can do what you want. Um, and uh, how is this organized? Well, you had your Spartan, you have your Ashkenaz. The Spartan is Spanish Portuguese Jew. They are very tiny. They have their shoal over there, Bevis Marks. I was there last year. And, uh, you know, they're fancy in their way and they do their thing. But then you also have the Ashkenazic Jews, because many Jews moved to England after around, you know, late 1600s um, from Germany and from Holland and places like that, from Poland. And they set up their shoals, And by the time you get to 1800s, there's already second, third, fourth generation. They already consider themselves Englishmen. Now, uh, in the 1600s, 1700s, there were Orthodox. That's all there is. But Orthodox doesn't necessarily mean that you're from, that you're Shem Shabbos, that you keep everything. And England already early on in the 1700s, early something was no, was notorious for laxity in mitzvahs. You know. That's how it goes. Uh and they had uh, a a rav in the uh, Great Synagogue, as they call it, and he's sort of like informally the chief rabbi of the Ashkenazim, but it didn't affect anybody, you know. It's uh, you know people just went their merry way and they didn't keep much. But when I say they didn't keep much, traditional they were, you know. Everybody has a Pesach Seder, you know. What I mean, they go to shul sometimes. People go more often to Rush and Kippur, you know that 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 type. But then their marriage was already starting up. And once you reach a certain uh, level of wealth, you know, those kind of problems. So they had um, the last rov of the old school, Solomon Herschel, was there around 1800, 1840, something like that. Uh, But he was, you know, an old-fashioned Polish uh, rabbi. Father had been before him. And we're talking over here conservatism. You know, the old school Englishmen, they were used to him. And so he was like the official uh, Rav, kind of, but not really. And there was a base in, but they didn't have any power. And the younger generation, little by little, is definitely going off to there. I mean, that's the clear point. And finally, he died. And when he died, the question is now, the synagogues got together and said, let's get a chief rabbi, the more modern type, from, from, but modern. And that will hopefully have a good influence on the younger generation and that sort of thing. And so they had a famous election, and Nathan Marcus Adler won in 1844, and they became chief rabbi in 1845. It's the W. with that he ran against Hirsch, who got, like, no votes. Adler got, like, 100 and some, and Hirsch got, like, five. You know, but okay, big deal. Now, I mean, it's a what if. What if San Suero moved to London? As somebody once said, would he have changed them, or would England have changed him? You know, we'll, we'll, we'll never know. But this Rabbi Adler came there. Went, at this time... There was already a reform movement in, in, in England. Not like the reform in Germany. It was a Mishogon Mich- reform movement. They wanted to go more like the you know, follow the Bible and things like that. And they're very heavily influenced by the English atmosphere and the Christians. Very English Jewelry, very heavily influenced by the English ideas. There was no, nobody could learn, nobody could read anything. You know, uh, all you yeah, have was English books. 99% of English books are Christian. It's, it's a tough environment, to be, to be honest. And Rabbi Adler came in there, and he was elected um, for a number of reasons. But if you want to cut all the baloney, the real reason, in my opinion, that he was elected was his wife was a relative of Rothschild. You know, so he married a girl from Frankfurt, a relative of Rothschild. That says it all. <laughs> you know, the rest you can figure out on your own. You know, they went through the the, the motions, but uh, that's what it was. The Rothschilds at that time were formally Orthodox, already getting schwach, slowly but surely. I would say altogether, all of English Jewry was getting swapped slowly but surely. And so, this guy was brought in to fix things up. Now, Nathan Marcus Agatha therefore served as a Dashkenazi chief rabbi from 1845, for another 35 years. Then he became able butler in his old age. or well, Not really, but he was very weak. So, for thirty thirty-five years. He came in there, and he was committed to... Uh, a situation in which, you know, staunch traditionalism. You take what you have, and it's a Kuala Yisrael approach. That's the way I find it interesting. And you try to have communal uh, institutions that will take everybody in, and little by little, you try to influence as many people as you can. It's really a very old Jewish idea. It's the traditional idea. Trouble is, it ran into the 19th century. So he became the chief rabbi, and eventually worked things out over the course of time. That all the other synagogues are supposed to be under his uh, hashba, And if it was up to him under his direct control, they eventually achieved that. They, he got the rich about them to get a law passed in parliament to make something called United Synagogue, which they, of course, still have in England today. And he's the one who did it. And the United Synagogue basically was a corporation in which the United Synagogue buys all the uh, tarka and they build all the synagogues and they own everything. You understand? Because he, he who has the money controls everything. So they own the land and all the rest of it. And he wanted to make it that he's like the Pope in England. like I know it sounds funny, like the Pope. Meaning, he's the chief rabbi, and he's the posic, nobody else. And he has the final say in all religious matters. And they wrote the, in the Constitution this way. And the only thing he couldn't do was put people in kherm. That was already out of fashion in the 19th century. He wanted it because he was old-fashioned, but they wouldn't do it. And um, to the degree possible... He wants to have control over the religious side of life in English jewelry. Now, why did he want to do that? For the best of reasons. I'll just say in two or, two words. Gittin and Kedushin. You understand? Gairus. He, the, the things that, that are, um, let's just say, non-negotiable, uh, he wants to be able to uh, to control. And so they did set up a situation which you have London Best in, and all the rest of it starts in the 1840s, and the idea is... Uh, that there's only one poset for the whole England. As long as he was alive, he tried his best to hold on to this, and he was pretty successful during his lifetime. And so he would not let anybody else get smicha if he could stop it, and he would not let anybody else have the title of a rabbi, even the dayanim on, on his basin. And he had two two dayanim that he paid out of his own pocket, so they're totally dependent on him. And the three of them together they constitute the basin. And the and and the point of the matter is anything involving Yiddishkeit, and particularly halacha, he's the guy. No one else has the right to say anything. And he meant the L'shem shemaim because you know what kind of phonies are out there. And this way, um, English-Jewish life, at the broad level, will be governed by his halachic rulings. And he was a firm guy. And uh, he was able to pull it off, because he was a good speaker. And, uh, you know, he did have the favor of the royal family, which is a lot over there. And uh, He made it his business to get along with the uh, Richie Riches, you know, the Rothschild and the other type. And uh, he wasn't a cultured and educated guy, and he also was from. And little by little, this United Synagogue, as they say, you know, reshaped Ashkenazi English Jewelry during his lifetime. I'm talking about now the 1840s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. And they really modeled it a lot on the Church of England, so he's like the Archbishop of Canterbury. So I'm, I'm serious. You know, he's like the top dog in that uh, organization. And this way, you don't have, I'll, I'll tell you the positive. You don't have to worry about any bad garrises. He's in charge of every garris. You see what I'm saying? That way. There's a London Basin and nobody else. Or if you wish, a get. You don't have to worry about bad getting, which is always a problem in Jewish history, because there's only one place you can get a get if he's able to swing it. And that's his Basin, and they're going to do it right or marriages, or things like that. And uh, I don't remember all the exact details, but he was able to get a lot of these things passed in parliamentary legislation. Not as much as he wanted, but more than other countries. So that you end up having a situation in England where there's Mamasha Chief Rabbinate, sort of, uh, especially given the circumstances in the 19th century. You can't force anybody, uh, you know, to do anything because there's now, uh, you know, the emancipation. The, the Jews are not legally... Uh, bound by a chief rabbi. And there was, incidentally, um, there was a, a reform movement, but he fought them tooth and nail from day one. And he was pretty bitter about it. I was actually surprised once. I read a book called Faith Against Reason by this guy, Pershoff, or something like in England. a fat book. And he went through chapter and verse of how Nathan Marcus Adler fought the reform at every single opportunity. And it was up to him he would suppress them. Of course, he couldn't do that. But... Um, the laws in England favored the Orthodox, His type of Orthodoxy. Now, uh, in, in return for that, you know, he had to have the approach in which you can't insist too much on the Baal and a high standard of halachic observance. You end up with an old-fashioned Jewish community of yesteryear, in which there's a right, a middle, and a left. And the right in England would be very small, and these are the people who really genuinely were Shemr Shabbos and everything that goes along with that. And uh, that, you hope, is your hardcore. You have a, uh, a left wing who are people who rarely come to shoal and don't keep hardly anything, but they stay orthodox. And you have the middle, which is like floating, and that's the ones you want to uh, control. And this became known as the angle of orthodoxy and many England, and uh, he also totally came out of the culture, that I said before, of these reformed small r. They used to call them in Germany the ordnung. Order or you know orders of service in, in the synagogue, so in the English way, the shuls have to have decorum. As somebody once said, the rabbi has to speak English, and the people can't spit on the floor. You know, says the, the old school, and uh, it's ma- 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 mainly a form of Yekish, You know, the 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 North German, East German minhagim, uh, of in terms of davening, and uh, uh, what shall I say, choirs, sermons. Uh, you know, very English, you have a prayer for the royal family, all that kind of shtick. Nothing of which in that all of which is to show you or the attempt was made to see you can be totally 100% Hashem return mitzvahs and be 100% totally 100% an Englishman. And that, 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 that was the esot. And uh, and if you do that, then what do you need reform for? That's the point I'm trying to get across. They tried to, to uh, defeat the reform by, you know, like you say in the in the game, I'll see you and raise you, you know, uh, I can do the same thing you have, and it's not necessary to be Michal Shabbos. And to a certain degree, he was successful. So I would say, in fact, to a broad degree, the success of his policy, which lasted during his time and and afterwards, was that Reform Judaism in England was very anemic. There were such groups, but they were always small. The vast majority, 90-some percent of the Balabatim, and even 90% of the Richie Riches, uh, I mean, the, the, the richest of the Jews, like the Rothschilds and people like that, were Orthodox. Now, don't tell me you would eat in their house, you know, <laughs> you know but they were Orthodox. And uh, you end up with this English eccentricity, but it was uh, according to the din. And in his time, there were once in a while shoals that tried to push things to the left. Can we eliminate this from the dominant? Can we change here? And he was a no. And since England was in the process during that time of expanding worldwide, and creating the Great English Empire of Queen Victoria's time, you know the what do I say the sun doesn't send the British Empire, which was true. So Jews were forming communities in Australia and South Africa and all kind of places around the world, Singapore, or whatever. And he was a Possekh. That's the way he wanted it. You know what I'm saying? If you're going to get a sock, let it come from me because I'm a from guy and I, I and I know how to pass games. The Tom he was, you know, and uh, that way. It's not going to be from people who are, uh, you know, uh, what shall I say, Um, reform or something like that, or uh, claim to be Orthodox, that's a problem you have nowadays in America, you claim to be Orthodox or really not, and, you know, it'll be genuine, and this is the model of control, you understand, that if I control everything, they can't go out bad, because I'm the one in control, and since I'm from, everything will be fine, or at least let's put it this way, it won't be unfine. And he was fairly successful in this. And therefore, during his day, during his career, from all over the British Empire and the English-speaking world, he got the shilas. Let me put it this way. In the United States of America, even though they not part of the British Empire, but if you're talking about the 1840s and 50s and 60s, that sort of thing, when they had some big shilo, most of the time, they sent it to the Chief Rabbi of England. You know, questions from New York City, Philadelphia, from Richmond, and so forth, they sent it to London to the, to the British Chief Rabbi. And, you know, he always gave... An answer that was uh, balanced because he's not stupid, you can't expect him to go too far. On the other hand, it's within the bounds of Aloha, so it's just very interesting. I remember he wrote a letter to Australia of all places you have to have a thing called a mikvah, and here's how you build, here's the instructions how you build a mikvah. Australia in 1800, early 1800s, I was like, still, you know, it's a nowhere'sville or New Zealand or these places, so it's just very interesting. This model, the problem is. With this is that it's, you know, uh, what's the expression a mile wide and an inch deep? That you can't, uh, you know, get anything uh, real and passionate and deep in terms of observance and a vibrant Yiddishkeit. Because everything I just described until now is an indication of the fact that in the 19th century was the golden age of the bourgeoisie of the middle class. That's when the middle class took off and became the dominant group in in Europe. And that means the Balabatim. The middle and the rich Balabatan. and they want to be the dictators. They want to be the little Hitlers. They want to, you know, have the say in how things go, and everything I just described in terms of decorum, and uh, financial, uh, you know, organization, all the rest is it, very balabatish kind of business. Uh, you know, have to be practical, and therefore is a de-emphasis on the spiritual side of Judaism. We need a rabbi who's competent who as a doctor, as a smicha, you know, knows how of baskin. And, 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 you know, the basin has to be run efficiently, the synagogue services have to be run efficiently, the worst thing is if the synagogue services are too long, you know, there's nothing about the inner and the, 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 what should I say, the neshama, uh, it's, the, it's the opposite of Hasidic or yeshivish or anything like this, in which you have a brand. This is where the Kitsonis is all excellent, uh, but the inside is not. This was a great uh, complaint. And uh, it was true. And so the result is, that the chief rabbinate that he set up and his son took over after him, and there's still a chief rabbi in England today, was successful in uh, thwarting reform. They never got anywhere in England. The official church of all the richy-riches was the Orthodox one, but uh, it didn't generate among their clientele a, a real passion for Judaism or, or an intense engagement with Jewish texts or anything like that. And the result is, little by little, they all intermarried and assimilated him, mean, and this is what happened. And this, It was helpless against sociology, put it that way. Now let's compare this with Sam Saffler-Hirsch. Uh, in the middle of his career, when he was in his 40s, he took a position of this small shoal in Frankfurt. Well, but everybody there agreed to be Orthodox. And so he was able to build that shoal, even though it's tiny compared to the British Empire, into something because everybody's from, and therefore you try to make it intense, as intensely from as you can. Even hers was criticized because it wasn't yeshivish, but still, you know, it was pretty intense, I would say. He was a genius in his way, and therefore, they produced a very strong and vibrant uh, uh, Yiddish guide. You and I, today, we've lived through times, at least I have, uh, in which there's been a transformation from the traditional to the from. The kind of synagogues that we're talking about over here, in which everything's run according to the din, but nobody keeps anything, They've all folded. Certainly in Baltimore, I'm sure where, where you live across the country, because it can't withstand the sociology. Uh, you know what I'm saying? It can't, and it doesn't deliver on the passion. Now, if somebody doesn't feel passionate about it, why should why should participate in all this? Why should have anything to do with it? It's a turnoff. You understand? And so in our lifetime, we've seen, you know, one kind of orthodoxy go down and the other kind of orthodoxy go up. It's just it's just interesting um, to notice this because. It's a question of what is viable. Now Adler was a smart cookie, and from day one he said we need chinuch, and he really gave it his best shot. But you know the, the, the balabatim weren't interested in having yeshiva. The most he could get was like a a a, a rabbinical seminary, and that's Jews College. But since the balabatim controlled it, so it never worked out the way he wanted. Theoretically, he wanted something. Every, whichever the whole world wants theoretically. As I always say, you want to be a brain surgeon and give the Taf Yomi. You know, to have X on English and X on Hebrew and a real Torah education. Eh, it didn't happen. Instead, the Baal are interested in training clergymen to be rabbi. Well, there's no rabbi, only only he can be the chief rabbi. So they'll be ministers. Fine. Clergymen. So they'll know how to run the services and how to give a sermon and all the rest of it. This is good There's nothing, uh, you know. Like I said before, deep and passionate about there. There's no classes in Gemara, no classes in you know where people argue over basic uh, Yesodas within the Torah and all the rest. You know, you, the partial we could really get wrapped up into, and eh, it's not none, none of that. And so you end up with a externalist kind of Judaism, and externalist Judaism doesn't work. That's what we see in the 20th century. You know, it, it just doesn't work. It hasn't worked in England. What's happened in England is that after he left office, he left office. He kind of retired in 1880. Look, the guy was 83. You yeah? know, he retired in in 1880. After that, came a huge wave of Jews from Eastern Europe after the pogroms—Russian and Polish and Lithuanian Jews—and they were of a different character. And they looked at this kind of English Judaism, which is Orthodox, right? And they said, "What's this business with a rabbi? He looks more like a Galach, and a and a choir that sounds like a church music." And you know, you ask a minister uh, a he had no idea what you're talking about, and uh, you know they're just foreign. They're more English than they are Jewish, more English than Jewish, and it was a tremendous uh, uh, turnoff for the Eastern European masses, and led to big fights in the 1880s, 1890s, and early 1900s. When his during the time of his son, who took over after him, the chief Rabbi Herman Adler. I don't want to go into that right now, um, but I'm talking about the but the original attempt is it was noble, and. Uh, what shall I say? In our times, we've seen that a well-organized Judaism, which is in a pyramid structure, kind of doesn't work. Uh, the only thing that works is a highly unorganized situation, in which every shul does its own thing, and then shuls, therefore, rise and fall, and yeshivas come, rise and fall, in response to a genuine uh, individual interest. Uh, again, you know, the, the school that he tried to set up it didn't get anywhere. He wanted a teacher's training college and he got one, but you know, it was very, very, very uh, which I say, of. I mean, the Jews' college never really worked out well. Uh, it was a noble attempt, but it didn't work because uh, we've learned today <coughs> either you're Hasidish on the one hand or Yeshivish on the other hand, and the other things don't work. You understand? The other things don't work. And so the old fashioned traditionalism, which was characteristic of so many centuries of Jewish life, simply. Has not been able to be adapted to the modern conditions. Uh, it's, it's very interesting in that way. Uh, will times ever change? That? It doesn't look like it. You know so when you think about the first cheap route of England, Nathan Marcus Adler, in the modern sense, it's, it's uh, what I would say is like it's a noble experiment that didn't work. You understand? Know no, they meant well, and from a theoretical perspective, it it might have worked out, and they might have developed schools and, and good day schools and post day schools and, and this sort of thing. And you know, t- trained teachers, and theoretically, you could have a situation which you have an excellent English and an excellent Hebrew, but it, it, it didn't turn out that way. What's happened in Great Britain today, in the last 50 years, there's been this right wing uh, turn, it's from the yeshivas, you understand, know, the day schools in England, it's just like America, right? I mean, I've been to England a grand total once, I may be going uh, to a show there in a, this summer, possibly, you know, for a SCON residence, but uh, I don't know yet, possibly, but. You know, you can see over there also, you have the the kids that go through this kind of chenich, and you have the kids that go through that kind of chenich. And it's very hard to make, you know, the Nathan Marcus Adler uh, model work. Um, On the other hand, the uh, Hirschian one had a funny history also. I mean, it lasted, while it was in Germany, it didn't last after that so well. So, uh, to study or consider this person's biography and career is to study... uh, important sociological realities of our lives today, which I don't think most of us give much attention to uh, because, you know, you're not historians, you're not sociologists, so why should you? But it's, it's, it's very, very interesting in, in perspective of what has worked and when, what has not worked. There still is a chief rabbi in England, as you know, that office is still there, but it, but it has trouble finding an identity, you know. The yeshivas, should don't need them. The non-formal increasing, you're less interested in. And, you know, how do you, so you have to make it work in the middle? And uh, you know how's that works? So, there uh, are Rabbi Sachs, you know Jacobowitz, all the others. I mean, you know, they're trying to find the right niche, which is uh, which is really an interesting matter. Oh, I've, just, I've spoken for very long. I'll close up right now. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www. Support